So none of you were at church last week, and that's okay. Um, if, uh, if you did have power or internet connection, we sent out an email that uh, Pastor Hannah, the, the pastor of Next Generations at our Cornwall site, uh, had pre-recorded a sermon from last week's passage uh, that she uploaded online. And that is kind of continuing our progression of the series. Listen, I know none of you watched it, okay? It's all good. You didn't have power, you didn't have internet, what have you. Here's the thing. Uh, we, I have taken it and I've stripped the audio from it and I've uploaded it to our podcast feed. So if you want to get last week's sermon, you can watch the video of it on our Cornwall Sites uh, YouTube channel. Or if you subscribe to our podcast or you want to find our podcast somewhere, you can find her sermon on last week's passage uh, there. And, uh, and that will help you uh, as you kind of look through the, the passage that we were looking at last week. Now, this week, uh, I have a very easy task of preaching a sermon on three verses, which compared to a lot of what we've been doing in our 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John series, uh, that is going to be great and a short passage to look at because we've been merging passages together and looking at several all at once. We're going to be looking at 1st John 2 verses 15 through 17. Now, just to kind of set this up a little bit, we have been talking about how uh, John has experienced Jesus firsthand. And he is writing to these followers of Jesus, probably in Ephesus, writing about, you know, I've experienced Jesus. He's real and trustworthy. And what I'm saying to you versus what some of these false teachers are saying to you, it's, it's trustworthy. You, you can believe what I said because I've experienced the guy. I've walked with the guy. I've lived and, and I know the fullness of who this man is. We talked about the reality of sin that, that John talks about. That, that maybe there were some teachers at the time who were saying, it doesn't really matter what I do. That, that maybe I've had a spiritual awakening and now my physical life doesn't matter at all. I can, I can choose to kind of go my own way. But John is saying, no, sin is a reality that both affects us and is a, a manifestation of the actions that we do. And our only hope is Jesus for uh, addressing the reality of our sin. Now, last week, Pastor Hannah, what she was talking about was a passage that was really set up, John saying, to, to be able to assure the, the people who are reading his letter to say, listen, this is how you know that you know Jesus. This is how you know that you know him, is, is if you are seeking to live like him. If you are seeking to follow him and to learn from him and to conform your life to his life, that's a good indication that, you, that you're on the right track. And so our lives as we seek to mature in our faith is one where we are by the power of the Spirit and, and the grace of God working to, to, uh, to become more like Jesus and to, to incorporate his teachings and his way of life into our way of life. Now, here's the thing. There are teachings of Jesus that we are called as his followers to embody and to take on and to live out that are very much countercultural. Or at least, if you do everything that Jesus taught us to do, you are not going to have a successful life in the way that our world deems a successful life. 
There are things like you need to forgive those who have wronged you that are countercultural to our sense of, well, I just, I want a, a, to be able to seek revenge. I want to get ahead on that person who wronged me, so I'm going to wrong them. Or Jesus, who talks about radical generosity. Like, you don't become incredibly rich by giving incredible amounts of money away. Or restraint. Like, we don't, we don't get everything that we could ever dream of by choosing not to pursue everything that's out there in front of us. Or Jesus teaching us about rest. Like, you, you see all these, you know, videos and, and books about all these entrepreneurs and like the Fortune 500 company leaders and, and these people who in our world's perspective have a very successful life. But in order to get there, man, they have had to run ragged for a long time. And often there is a, uh, a trail of burnt bridges in the background and probably their own health. That Jesus is teaching of rest is very difficult to live the kind of life of what is seen as successful in our world. There becomes a time where there are going to be crossroads between the way of Jesus and, and the way that things are done or encouraged in the world around us. And as followers of Jesus, we're, we're going to have moments where we need to choose. Am I going to go about this the Jesus way or am I going to go about this in the way that it's the normal thing? Or it's what people are encouraging me to do in order to be the most successful that I can be. And no doubt, as John is, is trying to teach this to the churches that he's writing to, many people are experiencing this crossroads. Experiencing this reality of, well, if I follow Jesus, that means like all this pursuit of all these other things is going to look different for me. And I really want these things, so maybe I'm going to just set Jesus on the sidelines. It became a choice. And, and John talks about those who, who left their, their, their church body because they decided they're going to pursue other things instead of Jesus. And John here is speaking directly to that. And so I'm reading from 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, where John says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, here in this passage, he is setting up kind of this dichotomy, right? The way of or love for the world versus love for God or love for the Father. That it's two different things. And if you love the world, you're not loving God. Now, immediately as I'm reading this, I have some red flags that go off. Especially if the person who wrote this letter also wrote the Gospel of John. Because I know some of you, you're thinking, wait, what about that really famous verse that Tim Tebow would paint on his uh, eye blacks? In John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? But here, John, the same person who recorded those words of Jesus, is writing here that 
don't love the world. Or the love of the Father is not in you. Like, what, what is going on? What, like, is this just contradiction? Is, like, Jesus just a friendlier guy than John? And John is kind of one of those, like, we got to stay away from the world because there are evil people out there. But I think something else is going on. I think in talking about the world here in this passage, John is talking about something different than Jesus was talking about in John 3, in the God's, For God So Loved the World. In the passage in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, I think what Jesus is communicating there is God's deep love that he shares with his creation. That he made this world, and it's a beautiful thing, and he desires for it to be redeemed from its fallenness. And so he has taken extremely great lengths in order to restore it back to himself. He's saying, look how much love God has for the world that he gave his only son. God loves his creation. In fact, theologians talk about God created the world out of an outflow of the love that existed between Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity past. I don't want to get too deep into like Trinitarian theology, but like God himself is love. And the natural outflow of his love was to create something else to share that love with. God loves his creation. The, world, the word for world here is cosmos. The whole of the cosmos, the whole of his creation, God loves and desires to redeem back to himself. But even though John is using the same word here, he's using it in a different way. What he's talking about here, when he's talking about do not love the world, he's not talking about creation in general that God loves. He's talking about the reality that the world we live in is fallen and broken, and though it was created good, there are some negative outcomes of the reality of sin at work. And so what he is making a distinction of is there are good and pure things that come from God, and there are distorted things that come from the world. And what he's saying is to love God and what is pure and what is of him and not the distortions of the fallen world that we live in. He, he lists them out, right? He says, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, when we talk about this love for the world, I think some help is given to us by, um, by Paul, the Apostle Paul. When he wrote his letter to the Romans, in the first chapter, he talks about uh, judgment coming upon humanity because humanity chose to worship the creation instead of the creator. And I think that is, that is very much a natural tendency that we have to get so caught up in the creation that we ignore the creator or we prioritize the, the created things versus the one who created it all. And God said there, there are those who pursue that to an extent where their hearts had just become so hardened. In loving the world, the danger is to love what is created rather than the one who creates. And, and you know, he talks about the, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And, and there are, you know, all kinds of speculations about the specifics of what he means there. But I think the language on a deeper level is more on a 
what are, the, what are the motivational desires of your life? What are the things that get you up in the morning that, that, that make you want to go and to live your life? What is your ultimate motivation? Using these, these words like lust and pride, it's speaking to that deeper level of, of these desires that we have. What gets you up in the morning? What do you live for? Is it, is it for money or, or for the next vacation? Is it, is it things like power or position or a career? Is it, is it in sexuality? Is it in approval from people? Is it in our family? In, in our spouse and our kids? And, and I think this is an important thing for us to, to talk through with this of, of in in our lives being motivated by the things that are created, sometimes what we are focusing our attention on are the things that are, are ultimate in our life aren't necessarily always bad things. Like, there are moments where he's talking here about, yes, there are things that we need to stay away from. Like, we, we can't let our lives be wrapped up and motivated by, by the affair or cheating on our taxes or... Uh, an insurance claim or all, like all of these things that obviously we need to stay away from. But I think for most of us, the, the thing that we're, we're tempted to worship or to love instead of God are actually good things that God created that we're actually just putting in the place of God instead of God himself. Like that's, it's super easy to do with family and it's natural to, right? Like who among us isn't, trying our best to provide for our family and to love our family well and to, to give them a good life and on all of those things, to raise our kids in a way that, that, that sets them up for what's best. But the problem is, is, is when we put family in that place where only God is meant to be, we're actually setting our family up for failure. We are putting a weight on their shoulders of being a fulfillment in our lives that they're not meant to be. If my wife is the ultimate love and motivation for my existence, I am putting an expectation on her to fulfill every desire and longing of my existence that she can't. Only God can be that. And it's actually crushing to her for her to be that in my life. That, that the minute that, that we don't see eye to eye or things like where, where if marriage goes in a certain way and like my life is gone, the whole purpose of my life being wrapped up in a person or, or if it's my kids and like the whole purpose of my existence is to raise my kids to be the best that they can be and to provide a good life for them or whatever. And then they grow up and, and something happens with our relationship or all of a sudden the whole purpose of my life is, comes crumbling down. My kids can't bear the weight of being the source of fulfillment and meaning for my whole life. It needs to be something greater. God can be the only, is the only one who can fill that place in our lives as the ultimate source of our meaning and the ultimate direction of our love 
and source of our life. John would have us understand that to put other things in that place of most valued in our life is, is treading in some dangerous water. Dangerous water for us, dangerous water for the thing that we are making ultimate because that is what motivates all of our desires. For us to be followers of Jesus and to live as disciples of Jesus is to be on this journey of progressively learning to love the things that he loves. To choose that my hope and my fulfillment and the source of my being ultimately comes from God and not from other things. St. Augustine, who lived in the three and four hundreds AD, he was like an early church father and he wrote a bunch of really important uh, theological stuff. But one of the, the concepts that he talks about is this idea of disordered loves. He says one of the big problems with the human heart isn't necessarily that we're loving the wrong things, but we're loving them in the wrong order. And so let's not hear this morning that God doesn't want you to love your family or your, your spouse or your job. That God doesn't want you to, to, to love being able to... to uh, pursue a career that does well for you? That God doesn't want you to, um, to look after your property and see that as an important thing? But that can't be the highest priority of our life. Our loves are disordered if any of those things rise above our love for God. John gives, gives two reasons for why these things are important for us to order properly. He talks about how worldly things will pass away, meaning they're created. They are not the ultimate creator, and so they have a, a finite lifespan. If your life is wrapped up in your spouse and you get to the age where they pass away, then your whole life is is set up on something temporary. If our life is set up on our career and we hurt our back and we're, set and, and we're on disability, then our whole life is wrapped up on something that was temporary. But on an even bigger scale than that, for us to set up our ultimate source of hope in this creation is to set our hope in something that's temporary where God is going to remake and restore his creation and life as we know it will be very different throughout eternity. And if our hope is in something that lasted in the eight, nine, ten decades that we had on this planet, then that pales in comparison to eternity. A life consumed by what is temporary will fade away just as those things fade away. But he tells us that those who love, um, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. He's talking about if our love for God is the ultimate thing, that, that is the very source and the, the, the place where we find our relationship and our salvation from God. 
That is what endures into eternity. That even though this world will pass away, we will go on to exist with our Creator in a new heavens and a new earth with Him. Let's focus on enjoying and choosing to find our source and fulfillment in the thing that endures forever, not in the thing that is temporary. Last thing I want to say about this. That doesn't mean we don't worry about the things that are temporary. That doesn't mean that we say, oh neighbor, I'll pray for you, but I won't help clean up your trees. You know what I mean? And, and I think sometimes as Christians, we can fall into this kind of like spiritualizing trap of like, it's the eternal things that matter. And so the temporary things, I'm, I'm just going to, like, we're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You've heard that expression, right? But I think in the act of doing the will of God in the temporary has eternal consequences. It has eternal ramifications. I think there is something a reflection of God's renewal of his creation in the very temporary, let's chop up some trees and clean up the yard. I think that, give, that, that dimly mirrors the restoration of the cosmos that God is trying to do. And there is a space to, to be able to demonstrate the kingdom of God in that. doesn't mean that we, we well, there, there's the passage about uh, who says, the, the people who say, oh, go on and have a great day, God bless you, but don't offer them uh, the water to drink or the clothes to clothe them. That there are eternal things that exist in temporary forms. So let's get very practical. Many of us are living our lives with disordered loves. And, and we need to ask ourselves, how, how do I rearrange my loves? It's really easy for me to love my spouse and hard to love God. I can see my spouse when I wake up in the morning. God is invisible. Like, those things are hard. And sometimes we'll latch on to kind of the visible things of, of I make church my God. Or I make, um, you know, my, my religious routines are God. How do we love God as the ultimate thing. I think it comes down to how we see the other things in our life. Uh, one of the, the most practical things I think we can do for the things that we are tempted to love in the place of God is to just continually express our thankfulness to God for them. By saying that to God, God, thank you for my wife, and the amazing person that she is in my life, and how, how you have brought us together, that is putting God in the place of, God, you are the provider, and you are the giver of the good things that I experience in my life. Instead of saying, oh, look how great I am that I, you know, picked up this lady while I was in college, and, you know, she's awfully fond of me, and, like, <laughs> where, where that makes that relationship, or even me, like, ultimate, to, to continually express thankfulness to God is a way of saying, God, you're actually the one on top who provided. You're actually the one that I can point to to say, every good and perfect gift comes from you. So when it, when it comes to you know, the, the house that we enjoy, that, man, we've been 
hoping for years to have this property and now we have it and, and it's taking up our time and our affection and our retirement years are spent in this place. Instead of that being the ultimate thing, we can say, God, I thank you so much for it. That you have been the one who's, who has given it to us. Another very practical thing we can do is fast. Now, as Protestants, we don't talk about this a whole lot. Like, our Catholic brothers and sisters who do the whole Lent thing and, like, fish on Friday, like, like they got the fasting thing down. But sometimes, as Protestants, we, like, pendulum swing so far the other way that we're like, we're not going to touch it. It's, like, works righteousness stuff. Like, let's not talk about fasting. But it is good for us to choose to refrain from something for a certain amount of time in order for us to evaluate its importance in our life. How many of you have spent a very different amount of time watching TV this week than you normally do? You have, you've been, unless you've been like, my generator is for Netflix. Like, <laughs> anyway, I won't. Some of you have been on a bit of a fast this week from some things that have been very important from you, for you. And you have been able to look back and reflect on, I didn't realize how much I depended on that thing. And I, I'm doing all right without Netflix this week. And sometimes for us to step back and to refrain from something for a temporary amount of time, good things even, it is good for us to do, to be able to say, do you know what, that thing is not ultimate in my life. Like, the Bible even talks about for like spouses to refrain from marital intimacy for a time in order to focus on prayer. Like if that is becoming too much of a focus, that it's good and right to fast from that for a time. Like it, even good things we can fast from in order to remind ourselves that they're not ultimate. Lastly, I think it's very important for us to regularly recenter ourselves on Christ. Recenter ourselves by reminding ourselves, no, He is ultimate. He is where I find my hope and my source and my motivation. And so this morning we're going to do a, a very practical step in that, is, is we're going to gather around the table. And as we break bread and we eat the bread and we drink from the cup, we're recentering ourselves. We're reminding ourselves that we are a people defined by Christ's body, broken in his blood shed on the cross for us. And I don't know about you, but like this week hasn't been a highlight for me, even on a spiritual level. Like my hope is that in moments of crisis, I'm on a spiritual mountaintop. That hasn't been that week for me. You know what I mean? And I need to recenter. And, and I think we need to recenter. And so as we, uh, as we have the elements, and I'm going to invite you to, to come forward for this, I, I'm, I'm going to invite you to take this as a time of recentering ourselves to remember that Jesus and what he has done for us and who he is and the hope he offers is ultimate. My family, my spouse, my job, my money, like none of those things are ultimate. My health, Jesus is the ultimate one.
So I'm going to invite Sarah and Matt to come forward, and they're going to stand on either side of the aisles here. And I, we're going to remember this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, where on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this, every one of you, in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. If today you want to declare Christ as ultimate, then you're invited to the table to come and to eat and to drink and to recenter ourselves on the one who gives us life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have given us the gift of hope, of life, and that you are, you are ultimately what we need. So in this time, would you, Holy Spirit, be working in us to bring us, bring us to a place of that realization. Bring us from disordering our loves to putting you at the top, to finding everything that we need in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're invited to the table.